Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, last week on the show, Cody Townsend and I talked a bit about the affordable housing shortages and the profusion of short-term rentals that have become increasingly common in mountain towns. And as I mentioned in that conversation, this week we are hoping to shed more light on a number of the relevant dynamics with the help of our guest today, Dr. Jenny Stuber. Dr. Stuber is a sociologist who has recently published the book, Aspen and the American Dream, How One Town Manages Inequality in the Era of Super Gentrification. In our conversation today, Jenny talks about some of the factors and policies that the town of Aspen has employed, and we discuss which of these things can be enacted in other towns to help navigate the needs of full-time residents, part-time residents, local workers, and the visitors that many mountain towns rely on. So, whether you live in a mountain town or love to visit them, my hope is that this conversation will help all of us better understand and think through the various factors and forces at play here and how we all can work to mitigate them. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Dr. Jenny Stuber. Here we go. Well, Jenny, how are you today and where are you today? So I am doing fine slash fantastic. I will say that I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, having been back to my home of Jacksonville, Florida, where I'm a college professor in the field of sociology. And I am still recovering from a fractured arm sustained on the Rio Grande Trail by a maniac cyclist in Aspen. What did the maniac cyclist do to you? The maniac cyclist and I, I believe if we went to a court of law, they would find it equally responsible. Both of us would be equally responsible for this accident. And that he uh, he said, on your left, and he clearly made himself known, but I tried to get out of his way, but he zigged and I zagged and we zigged and zagged into each other, anticipating that the other person would go in the other direction. And then I landed on my arm and fractured it. First of all, I'm very sorry about your arm. Mountain madness. It is it is the the price you pay for mountain living. Second, that's the old classic on your left and there is a weird unnatural response to <laughs> yeah, to move yeah. to move in the correct direction. I do want to point out just in the interest of fairness, somewhere there is a cyclist talking about the maniac hiker that uh, went the wrong way when he properly declared that he was on your left. So that's why I say a court of law would probably find equal responsibility <laughs> is that maybe he was driving recklessly, but he did in fact follow the norms of that particular trail. Okay. So there you go. Okay. We're, we're all maniacs here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> hey, to get Going into our topic of conversation today, I think first I'd like to hear you just talk to your own background and experience with this little town called Aspen. Yeah. So I've recently published a book on Aspen, and it's called Aspen and the American Dream. And in that book, I talk about sort of Aspen's origin stories and the fact that every place um, of significance has its own origin stories and its own mythology, the narratives that people tell themselves. 
And I have my own origin story for how I came to this project, my project focusing on Aspen, Colorado. And it goes back to a fateful day 45 years ago. And on that fateful day 45 years ago, I was riding on, it was my first plane ride ever. And my first plane ride ever took place on the private Learjet of pop star rock folk legend John Denver. But what was ironic about that, because, you know, it's not surprising that people in Aspen would have affluence um, and that would know famous people. But at the exact same time that I was flying on John Denver's private plane, I was also a young child whose mom was on welfare. And so I would go to school and I would be in the free and reduced lunch line. And my mom was on public assistance and would receive monthly checks from the government for a period of time. And that confluence of those two factors of being exposed to affluence, but also lacking affluence in my own life um, and flying into Aspen was an opportunity to see that process writ large. And so in the ensuing 45 years, my whole life has been an exploration of social class inequality and especially looking at how what we call cultural capital or access to knowledge and people is often at odds with economic capital, access to money. And so my my exposure to Aspen has always been a place where for a lot of people, economic capital and cultural capital line up, but you have all of the benefits and the privileges in life. But there's also a really important segment of the Aspen community of people who have lots of cultural capital, lots of access, lots of knowledge, lots of cultural riches, but they don't necessarily have the money. And I spent 45 years of my life observing that initially from kind of afar and from a lay person's, a lay child, a lay teenager's point of view. And eventually my life as a sociologist culminated in such a place where I had a sabbatical and where I could take all of the curiosities that Aspen had posed to me over the years and uh, explore them formally. And I should say, I guess I didn't mention this, is my dad was working for John Denver. And so he was a carpenter who met John Denver um, casually in Aspen and then developed a relationship with him. And that is a very Aspen experience is to rub shoulders with famous people and develop strange relationships with them. And I was always curious about how that worked. Well done and well said. I like the part about develop strange relationships with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're you're adamant about this. Typically strange. I don't know if clients become friends or friends become clients. And I have a host of people that I know in, in Colorado, in Aspen, Colorado, that have formal paid relationships with very affluent, high-placed people, but they're also friends with them. And I've always wondered the degree to which those friendships are truly symmetrical, the degree to which those friendships are genuinely symbiotic, or the degree to which one party at different points in time might benefit more from the relationship with uh, the other. But that sort of um, relationship where client becomes friend, friend becomes client, and that circle continues is one that is very Aspen to me. Well, Jenny, I'm not sure if you've heard... But a lot of the issues that you talk about in this book seem to be, I think it might be fair to say, increasingly relevant in, I don't know, pretty much every mountain town. I'll keep it focused on the United States, though I have a sneaking suspicion mountain towns outside of the U.S. may also be experiencing a lot of the things we're going to be talking about in this conversation and that we have been talking about on previous Blister Podcast conversations. 
Ladies and gentlemen, in case you're wondering, Jenny is nodding her head vigorously. She is indeed aware of the relevance. And so when I saw this book of yours come out and started in on it, I just thought we should talk. This is somebody who's really done the work on one particular community and really drilled down. But as you and I have already talked kind of off off air, you are very interested in the ways that what you learned doing a deep dive examination of the Aspen community, where there might be relevance and what the rest of us might learn as we all try to think about how best to mitigate and adjudicate a lot of different dynamics happening. Does that seem fair? Yeah. So for the last two decades, maybe more than two decades, the word Aspenization has been used. And I didn't coin the term Aspenization, but other people who study the Mountain West have used the term Aspenization. And sometimes it's been used as a term for what communities don't want to do or don't want to become. The term Aspenization has um, uh, the connotation of becoming a community that is too glitzy, that is too glamorous, that is too accommodating to outsiders, not sufficiently authentic, and not sufficiently accommodating to insiders or people who would work there and have ordinary lives there. And so communities like Ketchum or Jackson Hole or Park City um, and Crested Butte, Telluride, et cetera, have sort of warded against and steeled themselves against this phenomenon of Aspenization. And as you're hinting at here, more and more communities are experiencing that. That was happening pre-COVID. That was happening in line with a term that sociologists and other geographers use called lifestyle migration, where people are um, liberated from their desk. They're liberated from the workplace and they can now work in other places and they pursue lifestyle and lifestyle amenities uh, above and beyond a, a place to work. And so lifestyle migration has um, accelerated this trend and then COVID has hyper accelerated this trend. And so we see Aspenization, the growth of mountain towns happening um, across the mountain west. Where I think Aspenization becomes an interesting term is in my book thinking about, which is called Aspen and the American Dream, um, which focuses on what, uh, what communities can actually do to accommodate working locals. And so I like to think that Aspen provides lessons to other mountain communities and that Aspenization could in fact take on a different connotation of one community that has historically, and I use that word here very, very purposefully, has historically been able to manage the needs of working locals in ways that are actually quite remarkable. And let me just maybe underscore that last part that you just said. Because, you know, I have friends, close friends who grew up in Aspen and, you know, very much were in that kind of working class element that you've been describing here. And in conversations with them, they definitely are wide eyed about some of the changes that they are seeing, you know, over the course of their life. Right. And so I think it is just to make sure people don't think that your view is that Aspen has kind of completely solved the algorithm here and is doing everything exactly perfectly. I mean, these are changing times. Everything is shifting, right? And so you mentioned in your book, like Aspen is also facing its challenges. And is do you accept that? I, I just don't want people to, I don't want people to hear this and think, 
boy, if if Jenny is saying that Aspen is completely dialed, well, that's not exactly my experience of that place, right? Right. I think I'm going to be very frank, and listeners will not like my frankness on this. Sometimes I think people in Aspen, working people in Aspen, don't know how good they have it. There is a sense of entitlement to the mountain. There's a sense of entitlement to this beautiful, amazing, amenity-rich, safe lifestyle. So I think there is a degree of entitlement that comes from people. And maybe that entitlement should be held more widely by people everywhere is to say, we deserve better. We deserve a clean, healthy, amenity-rich place to live. But when I say that Aspen um, has gotten a lot of things right over the years, the thing that I think listeners need to know is that it is a town of 7,400 people that has 3,000 units of affordable housing. That's a ratio that no other community can claim to have. Now, are there problems with affordable housing? Yes. First and foremost, the demand is always exceeding the supply. Second, the quality of some of the stock of the affordable housing is questionable, and the capital has not been um, allocated to keep the, the, the units safe necessarily or in good quality. So there's going to be lots of problems within a system. But just thinking about that number is there's 3,000 affordable housing units for a community, a town that has 7,400 residents or a county that has 12,000 residents. That to me is a success. Uh, and I can talk about where that came from, but I would also add something that I think your listeners will like me to say. So I go from something that I think they won't like me saying to something I think they will like saying. And that is that global capitalism is a force unto itself. And what I mean by that, it can best be expressed by former council member in Aspen, Adam Frisch, when he was talking about some new policies that the city was suggesting. He raised the question, are we bringing a knife to a bazooka fight? And what he meant there is that around the world, global capitalism, terms like financialization, there's so damn much money out there that global capital brings a bazooka to towns like Ketchum, to towns like Aspen, et cetera. And even Aspen's very, I think, astute political leaders are bringing only a very sharp, well-honed, skillfully deployed knife to a bazooka fight. So I give respect to the generations, the last two generations, the last four decades of political leaders in Aspen for honing a knife that they use very judiciously. But to be frank, they are up against a monster fight from global capital, which wields a bazooka. And is it fair to say that so are other mountain towns? Knife versus the bazooka? Yeah, I think it's just a different kind of bazooka. I think the bazooka in Aspen is a, a benevolent bazooka in a sense because it's a community that has this sense of what I call Aspen egalitarianism. It's a community that has respect for locals, intrigue and interest in locals. That's the narrative it tells itself. It is a rarefied place where people are attuned to matters of culture and conscience. I mean, there's this whole idea of the Aspen idea, which was coined in the 1940s, of mind, body, spirit. And so this idea of Aspen exceptionalism is like, we're rich, but we're better than every other rich people. You know, we're privileged, but we're more evolved. 
And so I think the bazooka that presents itself in Jackson, Wyoming, is a different kind of bazooka because they attract a different kind of um, population to Jackson, Wyoming. I think that Crested Butte, if I may say, and um, Telluride are experiencing kind of similar bazookas because they have that authenticity. Um, and, and maybe all these towns trade on the notion of authenticity, but I think there are slightly different bazookas that are coming to different communities. And, and those weapons intersect differently with local traditions, making the fight kind of unique, but kind of predictable from place to place. So here is the tricky part of, uh, I think, your your job today, Jenny, is I am really hoping that you can help a number of us think better, think a bit more clearly about how we might even begin down the right path of thinking about these issues and not just thinking about them, but addressing these issues in our respective communities, right? It's kind of a tall task. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad you're smart, Jenny. Where would you want us to start, right? If we were to start on a, whatever the metaphor is, the, you know, the, the best steps up the ladder or the right curriculum blocks or something. Is there a clear trajectory here for us? Like first and foremost, here's where we should start to make sure we don't, you know, misstep or start down the wrong path. Great question. Um, let me start with the bad news maybe, and then I'll get into the good news. The bad news is that Aspen has tools in its repertoire that no other community currently has. And this might be getting us into the weeds, but a couple of decades ago, the state of Colorado passed a, an act uh, law called TABOR, and it's basically a taxpayer bill of rights. And what that means is that communities are now hamstrung, if that's a word, um, into the kind of taxation that they can collect. And so taxpayers' bill of rights in the state of Colorado gives the taxpayers authority over um, voting in or out new types of taxes. So going back now to um, this history of progressive politics in Aspen, at one point in time, they passed something called the real estate transfer tax. No other community now can, can really do this. It would take a force of nature for a community to pass a real estate transfer tax. What that means in, um, in very concrete terms is that for every parcel of real estate that's sold, the city, the city gathers or collects 1.5% taxes. And they use that money for community projects, principally affordable housing. So there's this massive coffer of money that exists in Aspen because of a law that was passed. They're kind of grandfathered in. And every time this comes up again, it is renewed. The real estate transfer tax is renewed by the local voters. Surprise, surprise. Maybe not surprise, surprise. Of course, they're going to pass a tax and continue to affirm a tax that benefits them, whereas those paying the tax don't live there. They're not year-round residents. They're not voters. So that's one thing in Aspen's arsenal is they have a massive amount of money so that if a house sells as, as it has lately for $70 million, the city gets $700,000 from that real estate transfer. And just the amount of money is, that it gathers on an annual basis is astounding. So that's what other communities just don't have in their coffers. But um, where I think we can learn lessons from Aspen that are positive is that in the 1970s, 
a band of merry pranksters, originally sort of led by, at least he was the face, Hunter S. Thompson, was the face, the public-facing face of a larger movement of progressive politicians who came into office in the mid-1970s and really had this idea, this community is for locals, we're going to make it for locals, and by virtue of that sentiment and that ideology, they basically said, we're going to stick it to the man. And that's my wording of it, is that they are going to use this device called the land use code. And that might be getting a little bit into the weeds too, but we're going to use the tools of urban planning to make sure that our community has spaces for locals, housing and retail. And we're also going to make sure that we gouge, maybe not gouge, we're going to extract mitigations from people who want to develop here because developers' needs are secondary to locals' needs. Now, there's a lot, there's critiques that we could raise about that, that during the 2000s and periods of economic downturn, Aspen stepped back from collecting those mitigations. They gave developers breaks because they wanted to continue to grow and fuel the economy. So we can critique whether the mitigations were always collected in the most judicious way that put the community first. The politicians have implemented a framework that basically put the community first. And in, in doing this, you know, there, again, there's been bumps and rocky roads along the way. But what I applaud the community for doing, the elected officials in the community for doing, by and large, is putting development second in the community first. But I want to put this point here as to how other communities can and should listen to Aspen and do this, is you've got to stand up to capital. Now, is that easy? No, probably not, because capitalism is always threatening to go somewhere else. If you impose these restrictions in Crested Butte, we're just going to go to Telluride. If you impose these restrictions in Telluride, we're just going to go to Ketchum. But one, I think, very astute former mayor of Aspen, his name is Mick Ireland, said that our local developers are always threatening. If we do this, they're going to do that. And his observation is it never happens. It never comes to pass. Because if Crested Butte is really that awesome, and if Aspen is really that awesome, those developers know it's a long-term play that is going to eventually reap its profits, and they are not necessarily going to pull out. And I say necessarily, and that sounds like a hedge, but I think Mick Ireland and Aspen was really astute in saying it's never happened once that capitalism has packed up its money bags and left Aspen. And so if other communities can follow that um, sort of th that model and that that belief, that fundamental belief that we can stand up to capitalism, they will go a long way to instituting policies. Hey, I want to ask about what maybe is the most obvious dynamic in many mountain towns. And yet sometimes I think some of us need to be reminded of this, and I'm just curious to get your take on this. Many mountain towns simply don't exist without the tourist economy. Many mountain towns would be a whole lot less desirable to visitors if there wasn't a strong local community and character. And I think that, again, forgive me to those of you who are like, no, duh. But I do think this, it's, 
we are often in danger in these conversations of losing maybe sight of that dynamic, the kind of symbiotic relationship, right? And I'm just curious, one, if you agree with that, and two, if you might speak to that, do we see these two things as absolutely intertwined and kind of necessary, the local and the visitor dynamics and economies? So many directions to go with that. Um, the notion of community character is is Aspen's golden goose. I think it's Jackson, Wyoming's golden goose. I think it's Telluride's golden goose is this notion of community character. Part of community character can be seen in Western landscapes, historic mining town, um, buildings and structures, the Victorian era homes that were built up around that, and small scale um, walkable, approachable urban landscapes are part of that too. So to some extent, community character is built into the built environment. At the same time, community character is also made up of the people who live there and the stories, the knowledge, that they hold. And that can be somebody who's been there two years. That can be somebody who's been there multi-generations is that community character. They are drawn to those places because of something that those places have and they want to work and live there. And a huge part of the Aspen lore is that people have always come to Aspen because the locals are interesting um, and that the locals know what's cool and that this is not. And notice that we haven't named this community yet in this conversation. I've never referred to Vale in this community. But there's always this boundary drawn against Vale, where Vale could be anywhere, both in terms of the built environment, but also there's just, ra- I don't want to say random people. Vale, you're great. But your greatness is also your its accessibility to Denver. And that means, you know, it has a different character. So, so yes, this, this lore of the, the symbiosis of local and visitor, and really it's local visitor and part your resident. It's sort of like a three-legged stool there, is really part of the Aspen lore. I think people in Aspen who have moved there in the last five years don't feel validated in the same way, don't feel included in the same way, feel alienated in new ways. Um, But that is part of the story. And I think that's one of the things that Aspen has traded on and has been able to maximize is that it's an authentic place. And its authenticity is not just in the mining cabins and the Victorian architecture, but the people who live there. Staying on this, this dynamic of visitor and local, I mean, in your own research, in your own observations, do you see that as kind of a 50-50 thing? Or are you like, hey, if we're just trying to advise, offer general principles and how to better maintain and grow flourishing mountain communities, is your advice, we need to not think in terms of 50-50, but say, I don't know, make up some numbers, 75% local, 25% visitor. I mean, you already talked about the need to resist capital. Right. But I'm just worried. I'm just wondering if we might be able to kind of quantify, in your view, some ways to think about that dynamic and if there's such a thing as being true 50 50, or if that's just not even the right way to think about this. 
And that's such a, the question turns my stomach a little, a little bit because it's so real. It's so real to the people who live there. I mean, I'm an insider and an outsider to Aspen. And I think that gives me an advantage in this conversation, but it's also a limitation. I have to be honest. I don't live in Aspen. I'm not trying to work in Aspen. Aspen has been part of my life for 45 years. My dad still lives and works there um, and, and has to hustle all the time to make Aspen work for him. So, so it, you know, it, it is my advantage and my disadvantage to be that outsider within when it comes to Aspen. Um, going back to the core of your question, in the context of my interviews and when I did my book, when I wrote my book, I interviewed, I don't know, 90 people in Aspen. And one of the questions I asked was, what is the relationship between lo working locals and part-year residents or visitors, but working locals and part-year residents. And I kept the question really open-ended like that, but used prompts to follow up at what I was getting at. And I was getting at the degree to which people thought of it as a real uh, relationship that's symbiotic or one that's exploitative. And lots and lots of people that I talked to genuinely saw the relationship between working locals and the, the visitors and the part-year residents as genuinely symbiotic one where each gets something from the other. Some small group of people even said that the relationship is one of exploitation, but it's one where the working locals um, are exploiting the wealthy people. There's that point of view out there to a small extent is that working locals benefit more, you can't really say that, than the visitors. But that their lifestyle, their high wages, um, and their access to some degree of affordable housing is made possible by the other. Also, I will add that working locals are entirely squeezed out of the free market for housing because of this tourist economy. So there's a real duality there that one has to acknowledge is that it is the visitors and the part year residents who are absolutely squeezing locals out of the free market for housing, but are also facilitating and making possible their access to subsidized affordable housing. So there were also, you know, some number of people who felt that the relationship was exploitative where um, the, the working locals were being exploited for the reasons I just said by the visitors. But I, I wanna go 50-50 in regard to your answer for the reasons also that I just said, is that it it would be nice if um, uber wealthy elites could sort of magically disappear from these communities and the working local could just be free to live and work and roam, but what jobs would they do? Um, and, and you can start to see how intimately intertwined these two groups' interests are. Uh, so I wanna say 50-50 but I'm open to any other conversation. One of the things that we talked about that I thought was really interesting, I had proposed to you that we define some terms and you actually said you really liked that idea because you thought that often in the conversations that we're having in these mountain communities, that in fact, we are sort of talking past each other and I thought that was really interesting. So I'd love to, you know, take some time here to, man, I feel like that would be significant. If one, if we, you know, recognize, oh, wait, maybe we are talking past each other. That's not great. So if we could define a few terms here 
to make sure we can maybe help address at least that issue of talking past one another, where would you want to start? Yeah, I want to start with the conversations around affordable housing. And there's other conversations we could have. Um, you can and do and should continue having conversations about environmental impacts. And I've largely bracketed environmental impacts from my specific analyses, but that's a fundamental existential threat to these areas. Um, so I'm going to bracket that for now while acknowledging that that is the question. I mean, environmental impacts is the question. But provided these places still exist, um, you know, affordable housing is the secondary existential question um, that faces these communities. And where everyone, I think, agrees is that there is a shortage of affordable housing. I think that's not largely disputed. You're going to get some fringy people who will dispute that. But assessments have been conducted that suggest that in the Roaring Fork Valley, which is where Aspen is located, um, there's 32,000 residents but there's a shortage of 3,000 affordable housing units. So that number has been created by research institute think tanks that there is a 3,000 unit um, deficit for affordable housing. Okay, um, great. But when we start really having a substantive conversation about the shortage of affordable housing, I think there's two different assumptions that are guiding that question where people are talking past each other. So where on the one side of the coin, there are those voices who are really concerned with the supply of affordable housing, and they don't think that the supply is adequate, um, and they acknowledge that. But then on the other side, there's the side of the um, debate where the question is demand, is if we increase supply, we are inevitably, from their standpoint, increasing demand. And when you increase demand, you really change the community character. You change what everybody has gone there seemingly for in the first place. And the demand is the issue that needs to be addressed. Um, you see that a lot this summer, by the way, COVID, and maybe we'll come back to that. But I want to hit on this kind of supply-demand conversation for now. Is that Some people are really, underneath the surface, really concerned that increasing supply unwittingly, or maybe wittingly, increases demand, and that demand cannot be sustained. There's another conversation within these within this conversation that is, I think, uh, where you see these unspoken assumptions being made, and that's who are is the housing for, and is the housing for the right people or is the housing for the wrong people? Would it attract the kind of people to this community that we don't necessarily want to attract? Um, and and to make that a little bit more explicit, I think there's some concession by the powers that be, the housing needs to be created for workers because workers are the bread and butter. So the ski co in Aspen, which is what, what it's called, ski co can't survive if it doesn't have sufficient lift operators and other people in the hospitality economy. So just in order to, for this place to function, we need to accommodate workers. But on the other hand, there's a fear, I think, in some stakeholders' minds that workers are going to become residents. And that while workers can and should be accommodated from this standpoint, residents are a little bit scarier to accommodate because residents are going to have kids and residents are going to need larger homes and residents are going to bring cars that they use year round and residents are going to have kids who require schools. And then that becomes a conversation is like, yes, while we need the workers, we're not sure we need the residents. I mean, really? Like I've, I, I can't say I've ever 
come across a conversation like that, but you're saying, no, those are conversations happening, what, among, who who is speaking that way? I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that I think it's SKIKO, because I think it's broader than that. But I think there's concessions, for example, this is where I would see it play out. There's concessions, for example, that tiny houses should be built 45 minutes away. SKIKO has done that because that's their bread and butter. They have built tiny houses 40 minutes away from Aspen proper and Snowmass proper. Um, so I give them credit because that's the, that's what they're in the business of doing. But what that that leaves open the possibility is those who come there for a season or two and really like it might eventually meet somebody and partner up and then eventually want to make a life there. And then where are they going to go from the tiny house? You know, they're going to be needing a larger unit and more infrastructure demands. I think another, if I may, I'll let you digest on that. But another, I think, point of tension that is really pernicious and potentially um, devouring the community right now is those who have sort of been in the community for a while and they're not the community's most affluent, but they've gotten their their um, foothold in Aspen and now they're terrified that the teardown next to their house is going to be built into a multi-family, multi-unit residence. And that's not what they signed up for. So they're not the people who have just bought a $40 million estate on the mountain. They're somebody who owns an $8 million residence. And then, by the way, that's in Aspen. That's a cheap residence. Just if you didn't know, $8 million is not something that is on the higher end in Aspen. But they're worried that the teardown next to them will be converted into multifamily housing and that that's going to compromise their quality of life. We should speak to this then, the whole NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard problem. I mean, what do, what do we do here? I mean, on the one hand, I think, yes, many folks are probably like, yes, yes, we need more affordable housing in our particular community. And again, but oh wait, where did you want to put that? And then, and so just talk to me a bit more about what you have learned and specifically seen on this front. Is it just a hypocrisy here or what do we do about this? What do you know about this? How do we address this? Again, fantastic question. I'm going to go kind of historical and I think NIMBYism has not historically been a huge problem in Aspen. Again, people are going to disagree with me. That's what lively conversation is about. I welcome it. And again, it's the insider versus the outsider perspective. But when I say that NIMBYism hasn't historically been a problem in Aspen, I mean that support for the affordable housing program has been extremely high, um, especially in general terms, support for it has been extremely high. And that one thing that's really been an asset to these policies in Aspen and support for affordable housing in Aspen is that the people who occupy those units are just like us. Meaning the person that's gonna occupy that affordable housing unit probably went to Dartmouth just like you did. And maybe they're taking a year off from Dartmouth or maybe they're taking a gap year after graduating from Dartmouth. But the person who wants to come out there, maybe do an internship in urban planning or write for the newspaper or one of the glossy magazines, 
is just like you, meaning they're from the same suburbs in Chicago. They're from the same suburbs in, outside of New York City. They went to the same types of schools and they like to do the same thing. You have the same cultural capital. Coming back to a term that I used early on in the conversation is they have the same cultural capital. And that cultural capital has really paved the way and eased the tensions of the community that people occupying affordable housing are not some other. And note that they are also probably similar racially. And we could bring race into the conversation to the degree that anybody wants to. But they are similar racially and similar cultural capital. It's not the other that's trying to get housed. So I think that's been a historical thread here that's contributed to support for affordable housing. What you point out now with nimbyism, I'm seeing that creep up. I'm seeing it creep up to some small extent, like we don't want a rooming house next to us because they're going to have bikes, they're going to have dogs, they're going to have multiple cars. And those kinds of things are going to disrupt our quality of life. I think personally, the more widespread form of nimbyism that I've seen is that some of your viewers, listeners will really like this and some will really cringe, is that views of the mountain are more important than people. And I think that sentiment probably persists and is, is consistent across beautiful mountain towns where the mountain is an asset. The mountain creates the, the community character. The mountain is the golden goose. And so views of the mountain, whether it's for selling Aspen or selling the community or because you get to look at it and it makes your life amazing, is views of the mountain are more valued than people. And so a unit that has um, three stories tall or in excess of 25 units is just abhorrent to the community. It changes the community. It is fought by the community. And oftentimes it's, yeah, it's destroyed by the community or altered by the community. And I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I do, but I don't because I don't have to live there. It's not my home. I'm wondering about that one as well. And since you live there, you can fight back. I mean, you can, I'm happy to, I'm curious about your point of view. My thought on this is at least the people who are being pretty vocal or just really believe like, no, we need to do better in these communities in terms of affordable housing. Those folks in particular then need to not be pulling the like, what I think would be a rather hypocritical view of like, but don't you dare affect my views. Right. I mean, other folks who are like, yeah, I don't care about affordable housing here. Like, we're good. I always am kind of interested in like who leads the charge, who leads the way on this. And so I think that's at least one where, you know, maybe first rule in life is I, I'd like to try to get clear on your own principles and then make sure those principles are in accordance with your actual practices or how you vote, et cetera. That seems like a bare minimum of human existence. I actually kind of think that's still the work of philosophy, to be honest, you know, but like trying to align our principle, get clear on our principles, align our practices with those things. And so at a minimum, I think if we can alleviate or remedy that confusion, that would be at least a step in the right direction. But yeah, I think the more that a person and then to expand out, the more that a given community is like, we want to be a a champion for affordable housing. It's like, well, there will be compromise here. And if part of that compromise is 
a slightly obstructed view or an entirely obstructed view. I don't know. My kind of thing is a little bit like, well, then go outside, you know, like go ski. There are plenty of trails. There's plenty of trails for you. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. The right to the mountain. I mean, this notion of mountain viewplanes and protected viewplanes exists in Denver. It exists in Aspen and and it exists for uh, municipal buildings and historical structures is that if you stand on the doorstep of the Wheeler Opera House or City Hall in Aspen, you should be able to see the mountain. These places have historical significance and the view of the mountain from those um, vantage points is protected by law. But the, uh, the idea that you're protected on your deck, that's deep. That's deep. I want to draw a connection, though, between sort of like this conversation about nimbyism. And I said I wasn't going to talk about the environment. I said I was going to bracket the environment. But I will now bring it back into the conversation, which I think is where we're starting to see contradictions and paradoxes, tensions and hypocrisy emerge, and then some attention to it, at least in Aspen. And that's that there's been a number of analyses over the last five or so years that show that the environmental impact of a 10,000 square foot home that is uh, that is occupied for two months out of the year is quite extraordinary. And I don't know what it equates to in terms of multifamily units of a smaller size and scale, but the amount of deliveries the amount of water, the amount of heat, the amount of fossil fuels, the amount of trips that that uh, a manager has to take if you're a, a manager of that property back and forth, uh, just the amount of workers and traffic that that generates is astounding. And I wish I could quote to you how much that environmental impact is as compared to, you know, families occupying 1,200 square foot units or something like that. But I think that conversation has now been, is being had about where is the environmental impact in this community? No, you can't see the 10,000 square foot house from the vantage point of your deck. Maybe you can, but you know, if I'm thinking about some of the more modest homes in town, you can't see them, but that's the threat to your community. And the amount and the number of private jets occupying the Aspen airfield this summer, unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented. And if you think that that's not impacting your quality of life, you're, you're, you're clearly uh, myopic in your standpoint. So there's more consideration of understanding how humans and the environment are fundamentally intertwined and that nimbyism in terms of protecting the environment that you you hold dear may not be threatened by the multifamily unit, but by that one large unit that you can't necessarily even see. Some other big topics. Well, first, I want to talk about COVID. We, we mentioned it, and that was a big question I had in reading your book. Like, how much do you feel COVID has really changed the whole game or just been more of an accelerant? Yes and yes. Yes and yes to that. And to back up my idea, the person I first want to quote and attribute is um, a scholar and journalist, 
from Canada, Naomi Klein. She's written some wonderful books, Naomi Klein. And she coined this term disaster capitalism. At least I think she did. So we might need some fact checking here. But regardless of who coined it, which I do believe is Naomi Klein, the idea is so sound and so applicable to this. And the idea is that whenever the social world experiences a disaster or the environment experiences a disaster, capitalism steps in and benefits from it. That capitalism can exploit what seems to be a human crisis and which is a human crisis. And somehow they come out smelling like roses and in a better position than they were before. I think the notion of disaster capitalism has really been situated in post-Katrina New Orleans and examined how that city, quote unquote, came back after Hurricane Katrina. But it came back in a way that it was ripe for investment by people who had money to invest and that doing so actually deepened some of the class divides within New Orleans. So I think the term disaster capitalism really applies to this post-pandemic or pandemic world that we find ourselves in and how those who have the ability to take advantage of crises, absolutely we see them taking advantage of crises. And whereas many, many people, large percentages of people have experienced economic setback in these times, other people have, to, to use the word that you use, have experienced COVID as an accelerant to their lifestyle and to their, their economic fortunes. So let me talk about this very specifically in the context of what it looks like in Aspen. So what it looks like in Aspen is confusing and complicating. Um, this summer, like Crested Butte and Oliver Mountain West, there has been a labor shortage. That labor shortage has led to maybe some compromises or declines in the visitor experience. I can't believe I'm using the term visitor experience, something that the chambers of commerce like to say a lot, because, um, you know, you can't meet the demand for people dining out. But on a concrete level, what that looks like is that Aspen's city budgets have increased revenues, have increased by 25 percent. So money is flowing. Money is flowing through home purchases. Money is flowing through retail purchases. Money is flowing through, and there are ways to break this down, through lodging taxes and so forth. I believe that the largest source of those revenue increases are coming from um, property taxes, although I can't say that for sure because I haven't looked at the pie charts and the budgets and what's being counted where. But um, 25% increase in the municipal budget. Somebody's going to eventually benefit from that when they figure out what to do with it. Hopefully, it's the locals who are going to benefit from that. But one place where they're absolutely not going to benefit, the locals, that is, is in the uh, housing market. Absolutely not going to benefit because Aspen is a place where working locals cannot participate in free market housing. Anything worth anything has been bought up as a single family home or converted into Airbnb. Uh, short-term rentals. And that whole topic of short-term rentals, I hope you, I, I'm confident that you're following that conversation. We're going there next, Jenny, but okay, keep good. going. Um, and, and just to, to look at this, the highest in Aspen, and we may, we may not all speak real estate to the same degree and with the same fluency, but the most, um, F, the most desirable real estate in Aspen sells for $3,000 a square foot. Now, if you don't speak real estate, that money might, that amount might not mean anything to you. But, but I live in a very normal city of Jacksonville, Florida. 
And real estate here in the most desirable areas sells for $250 a square foot. Now you do the math, that's four times, I think 12. I think that's a 120, I don't know what, 12 fold. It's 12 fold, you know, cancel the zeros out and figure out how that works. A 12 fold increase, I think, but $3,000 a square foot in Aspen, the most desirable and in an ordinary town, you know, like Indianapolis, like Omaha, like normal cities, um, $250 a square foot. And the final point, housing revenues have increased 145% in COVID. That also means that the, the, the real estate transfer tax, which can fund affordable housing, has increased by similar degree. Is it safe to say then, punchline, many towns probably do have more money available for affordable housing developments than they used to have. I can speak for, I think, yes, yes, directly to answer your question. And I can speak very specifically to, to Aspen and say that the money has never been the problem with building affordable housing. We can have conversations about who builds it. Is this a public-private partnership? How are we going to do this? What size units? Where? Okay, all of that is up for debate. All of that figures into the logistics. And I hope you have conversations about public-private partnerships and who should be responsible for building and managing these units. But I will say in Aspen, the money has never been the problem. The money has, okay, never is a crazy word, but the money isn't the problem. The money is there. Um, Now we need to look at the political will. So I, I, and then I think as far as like revenues from sales tax and lodging, that's just flowing into these communities up probably, you know, percentages, large percentages, tens of percentages. I think it's time to talk short-term rentals. Yeah. Our last week's podcast uh, conversation I was having with Cody Townsend, we, we talked quite a bit about short-term rentals, but I would love to now get your perspective on this and what I'd frankly most love is if you thought, <laughs> here's clearly what at least many mountain towns ought to be doing in terms of best practices or best policies along these lines. So so I, I would say I wish I was an expert on this, but actually I'm glad that I'm, I'm not <laughs> because I don't have to make policy recommendations. And I can share the wealth and recommend like my colleague, Krista Paulson, who's at Boise State can talk about short-term rentals. And she and some of her students are working on the Ketchum locale as their their area of interest and their area of expertise. So I'm kind of glad that I don't have to be the expert on short-term rentals and that I can share the wealth and say, I don't know. Um, One thing I do know is that, yeah, this is a core of the problem here in Aspen. And I'm the problem, right? Because every time I go there, I rent from the same woman she rents at an amazing rate. I rent a one a very, very small one-bedroom condo. This summer, I started thinking, oh, I want to buy one for myself. Um, and I'm not wealthy by any means, but I could afford to buy a $350,000 one-bedroom condo in Snowmass, of which there's you know a handful of units. And then I realized I really become the problem if I make that choice. I'm the problem. So the types of units that are converting in Aspen Snowmass really are those older stock, small studio one and two bedrooms that otherwise in a different scenario would accommodate working locals are exactly those units that are converting 
and being attractive to people like me, middle, upper middle class people who might be able to go for a month or for a week or something like that. I don't know what's being done locally on this uh, of regulating. I'm taking a pause to redirect a little bit or get your thoughts. Well, I mean, what we're seeing here in Crested Butte, right? The town of Crested Butte just issued a moratorium on new short-term rentals. This is being discussed in Mount Crested Butte as well. And, you know, this is one of the things that Cody and I were talking about is that like, well, a moratorium, and not that, I. first of all, I don't think anybody is saying that implementing a moratorium solves the problem. It's simply a recognition like, let's hit a pause button and try to think more clearly about what's happening here. But I think where Cody and I kind of came down is like just capping the current number of short-term rentals. Maybe we don't exacerbate a problem, but it doesn't it doesn't alleviate anything. I come back to one comment I said in our past conversation was in the way that you just said you found yourself asking about, you know, should you buy the studio in Snowmass and you're like actually I think that might contribute to a problem. I would like to believe and I actually do believe that there are a number of people who would like to do right in these given communities, right? I don't know if they are the minority or the majority. And so I proposed something in our last conversation just on the kind of education front that, you know, look, if I were to go to Jackson, if I wanted to go visit, actually, I just did visit Ketchum. I think there would be a large number of us who would love to not be like, yeah, I want to go visit Ketchum or Sun Valley and I don't give a crap about what kind of impact that has or, or you know, it's like, I think we want to be good stewards of a lot of these places. So I am not ready to say that like, oh, well, let's just, if we all, you know, examine our hearts and minds, that'll surely take care of these problems. I think regulatory answers are going to be absolutely required, but it doesn't need to merely like, let's get the regulation right and the policies right. But I also think if we just think through and examine, you know, get more educated and think through and examine what are the things we might do and might not do that would have a better or worse impact as we go visit or maybe try to live in a given place. I sure hope we're doing both of those things, right? The individual level and the the policy level. Yeah, agreed. And also agree with you that the policy lever is a bigger, ultimately more impactful lever to push. And then a feedback, there's a feedback loop between both of those as the individual and the, the policy or the institutional level, the regulatory level. I will say in, in reacting to what you're, you mentioned, here's an exaggerated comment, but I make it for the point of making a point. No one in Aspen's really talking about short-term rentals. Like there was not a, we have two daily local papers that are free. And I read two daily local papers that are free every day this summer. I spent two months in Aspen. I don't think a conversation on short-term rentals was anywhere in those papers. I don't know if that's either because that ship has sailed or because that ship has not yet come in. I don't know. 
Um, those conversations have happened in the past. The analyses have happened in the past. We know that upwards of, this is a different conversation, but 60% of some neighborhoods in Aspen are occupied by part-year residents. I mean, we know that there's a lot of dark communities. And by dark communities, I mean lights-off communities that are not occupied full-time during the year. We know that. So I think it's interesting. Just I'm going to use that phrase again. Is in Aspen, I don't know if that ship has sailed or if that ship has not yet come in to really engage the, the short-term rental conversation. And I've seen the conversations in the newspaper and among policy leaders in the past, but they're not there now. And I think part of that, from my standpoint, is that the affordable housing program has been so successful that they've had a different mechanism or a different lever to push. And they have that money there to push affordable housing. And now they're in a, a more precarious situation because for reasons that are complex, some of the affordable housing units are going to um, disappear. They're gonna go into a different, they're gonna go into the free market in the next few years. And there's going to be a deficit. There's a mounting deficit and new projects are going to get built. But I think the success of the affordable housing program has led to the belief that there's another lever to push. There's another mechanism by which these folks can be accommodated. What we haven't talked about yet is what do you do if you are living in Aspen and you and your partner, if you have one, earn $150,000, which is a lot of money in the United States, but you can't buy a house. Then people are getting pushed further and further away. They're getting pushed in the Roaring Fork Valley to communities like Basalt, which is increasingly unaffordable, to Carbondale, which is increasingly unaffordable. Um, but those are places where people are drawn to because if you're a mildly affluent person, you make a decent income, you can allow your house to appreciate in value. And maybe, again, this is getting a little bit too deep into the weeds. Even though Aspen's affordable housing program is, from my standpoint, large, and successful, one of the things that doesn't offer is people to build equity in their homes. And that's a larger conversation about how home ownership has functioned in the United States as a bank account and something to draw on on retirement. But that is a discernible limitation, but it's also what allows the policy to work, is that if you buy into a unit in the Aspen Affordable Housing Program, it can only appreciate in value with the cost of living and you can never actually use your house as a bank account. And that policy seems fairly common, right, in deed restricted housing. That I don't think. At, please correct me if I'm wrong. No, but I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're correct. Well, it turns out we've talked for over an hour now, and uh, I feel like we could go for several more hours. But I think that we've done a good job of at least getting a number of the relevant factors and dynamics on the table here, and drilled down on some of them. I did want to at least touch on this. Maybe we end here. We'll see. You mentioned in your book that Aspen and Pitkin County, at least at the time of your writing, didn't have an economic development office. I wondered if you might speak or if we could talk a bit about sort of offices of economic development in mountain towns. If you think, yes, clearly every single mountain town ought to have this. And if you have thoughts about how those could best be utilized? Yeah, great question. Um, so Aspen doesn't have, Pitkin County doesn't have an Office of Community Development. And when I think of offices or you know agencies of community development, I think of them as entities that are built primarily around bringing development and bringing economic vitality to an area. And I think 
Um, but Aspen just has never lacked for vitality, at least in the last 40 years in which it's really emerged as a mountain ski town. What it has is the Aspen Chamber and Resort Association. And they're involved in branding the town, selling the town, providing information about the guest experience and the culture to the community and to the world. Um, and so they do some of the work of a community development agency, but I think they're more, more focused in my, my assessment on branding Aspen rather than necessarily selling Aspen. Aspen sells itself. It doesn't need anybody to sell Aspen or attract investment in Aspen. What has emerged as a conversation, and this is a contested conversation, is whether communities like Aspen need a viable year-round economy and jobs other than the ski economy. Now, Aspen has fire department, it has schools, it has a lot of publishing and promotional kind of stuff. So there's jobs there, there's a lot of architecture, there's a lot of land use going on there. But people will critique it and say that there's really not a lot of good jobs to really keep a population of 30, 40, 50 year olds living and working there. And the former mayor, Steve Skadron, has called this the uphill economy and that Aspen needs to invest in its uphill economy, basically the idea of broadening the economic base of the community beyond tourism. Um, you can imagine how controversial that statement is because then it transforms Aspen into a year-round community that is in some ways more functional. So wait, why is that, why is that controversial? Yeah, because then you just have more people who can make Aspen their home. And there's another voice in the conversation of those who would want to limit growth. And we haven't explicitly used the term like growth, low growth and growth limitations, but that's been at every step of our conversation is those who would want seek to limit growth. I'm going to come back to the uh, environment in ways that I said I wasn't going to, but uh, apparently you can't escape it because it really is the existential threat to who we are. Um, a, a common term used in Aspen in conversation evolves, revolves around the notion of carrying capacity. And it's the notion of like how many people can reasonably use this space. And there's a constant sense of existential threat to Aspen because the carrying capacity, traffic, this, that, the other, is out of control. Pitkin County has about 12,000 residents. But we also know that during peak summer, I don't know, it swells to 60,000. I don't know. Get, get the numbers on that. Fact check me on that. But as far as like everyday carrying capacity, that is a town that does not, does not suffer. Okay. I say that with the mind of those people on the road who are caught in traffic trying to get to work, but it's a town that doesn't really, that seems to be able to function with 60,000 people there. I think the question is, is who deserves to be there and who are the people who should be there? So when we talk about nimbyism and carrying capacity and look at their intersection, it is clearly a town that can handle more people because in its peak seasons, it does handle more people. But then those conversations get um, really tense when you talk about are we talking about year-round people who are going to increase infrastructure demands year-round are they going to be the right people to live here and are they going to be in my backyard is that where their their house is going to be so i think that that question about caring capacity and who deserves to be in aspen um and for how long is it is a great question for all of these mountain towns 
One of the things that I've been wondering about and have admittedly been really intrigued by, and I'm curious to get your take on this, is I think there are a few things that are maybe trending this way. We have talked a bit about manufacturing and looking to reclaim sort of local manufacturing. And you could, if we're talking at the most global level, local might mean just within one's in individual country, right? So if we're here in the United States, so if we're talking about bringing manufacturing jobs back to the United States, a lot which have been, you know, moved offshore. I'm very curious about mountain town communities being able to do more manufacturing. And on the one hand, very quickly, people will bring up like, wow, that sounds really expensive, you know, to manufacture in a place like Telluride or Aspen or Crested Butte or what have you. I do wonder though, if depending on the product being manufactured, if on the one hand, consumers might be willing to pay more. I, I think we are also trending in more and more consumers want to know where is that thing built? And if they really have a compelling story of how that thing was manufactured and or where that thing was manufactured, I think more than ever before, there are more people out there that would be willing to say, I'll pay a bit more for that product. So where do you stand on this? Do you see me as being kind of naive, kind of like good luck with this? Yes and no. Here's where the, here's the no. I like what you're saying. If we're talking cannabis, if we're talking beer, if we're talking mountain gear, there's a, there's an economy for that. There's a market for that, I should say. So cannabis products grown in the mountain West, people will pay for that. Uh, if they can get their hands on it. Beer, branded, local, that's going to be a selling point too. And with brands like Code Epoxy and Strafe and uh, such like that, I think whether it's ski gear or just a backpack or a jacket, like that's going to be attractive. There's going to be a market for that. What I'm thinking about quite poignantly right now is the fact that, and you know this, I-70 is closed. I-70, which is the major interstate that runs right across Colorado into Utah, is closed because of environmental concerns and what we'll call global warming, climate change. Now, the uh, Independence Pass is closed too. That's gonna be a more brief closure, I think, but I don't know. And now both the two routes, two of the major routes in and out of Aspen are closed. So with these environmental concerns, we really reach questions about supply chain and distribution of product. And there, there are probably solutions in these mountain towns to environmental concerns that are greater and more innovatively embraced than elsewhere. So maybe where there's a will, there's a way. Um, but it has to be done with the environment in mind because that is the great, that is the fundamental existential question. And doing anything that would compromise the environment further would be a disaster for everyone. Well, Jenny. I really appreciate this conversation today. Any kind of final thoughts on your end about to, to kind of put a bow on this particular conversation for now? I'm glad that I don't live in Aspen right now or the Mountain West. 
And I'm really glad I'm not an elected official or a city planner in these areas because the mountain of uh, challenges and contradictions are massive. And so uh, when I say I'm glad I don't live there, I mean that tongue in cheek um, because of course I and many others would love to live there. But those who actually live in these places have a tremendous amount of skin in the game and a tremendous amount of challenges and contradictions to work through, much of which does drill down and relate back to the different constituencies who live and make up these places. As you said, that 50-50-ish relationship between visitor and local. And I send everybody mounds of good vibes to, to work through these, these issues that are considerable. Yeah. And I think to that, I would say, I kind of feel the same way, you know, God bless our city and town public officials trying to think through this. But I think one of the things we can do is for any of us living in these places or those of us who like to go visit these places, again, being more informed on the issues that ought to at least help. I don't think it's helpful whatsoever if we're like, wow, these are big thorny issues. Good luck to the, say, six to eight folks that are going to have to figure out policies for these places. That's not how any democracy is supposed to work, right? So today, while I'm sure you and I have not created the clear blueprint here for how all these different communities go forward. My real hope is that we can just have some conversations here where we each can start thinking better about individual particular communities and try to get to some consensus about best practices and best ways forward. And um, this conversation today, I hope, has been a catalyst for that. And again, your book, Aspen and the American Dream, How One Town manages inequality in the era of super gentrification. We mentioned your book last week on the podcast. And for those who would like to drill down more on how one community is facing some of these issues, get Jenny's book. Yeah. And, and, and in conclusion, if and when you go visit any of these places that we mentioned today, ride the bus as much as you can. Park your car and ride the bus and gaze off in the beautiful mountain if you can and reduce your footprint. Here, here. Jenny, thank you so much, uh, both for your book and for this conversation, and uh, been a pleasure speaking with you. Excellent. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Jenny for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week over first on our Off the Couch podcast, then on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. And then finally, we'll wrap up the week with our Gear 30 podcast, where we are going to be doing a very, very deep dive on a topic that might surprise you. So stay tuned for all of those. Talk to you soon.